Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, if ever the expression, the third time is a charm, was meant to be directed at a specific person, this is it. She did a play in Chicago, then she did it again at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and then the third time on Broadway. That play, the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window, That person is on the podcast today, and that third production has brought her a Tony nomination. Welcome, Miriam Silverman, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Miriam Silverman. Miriam's Broadway credits include The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window and Junk. Some of her many, many other theater credits include Autonomy of a Suicide, A Play as a Poem, A Delicate Ship, Everything You Touch, You Got Older, and Finks. Some of her television and film credits include Breaking Bad, Education, Fleischman is in trouble, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Dead Ringers, and more. But I got to see her the other day in The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, um, for which you were nominated for a Tony Award for your performance as Mavis. Um, how exciting, first of all. Congrats on that. Thank and you. In reading about you and um, looking in the playbill, obviously you have been in previous productions of this play, not just at mm-hmm. the one in BAM that transferred to Broadway that I got to see, but years ago. So I would love to hear, like, how did you get involved in this and how long ago was like your first holding of this gorgeous script in your hand and reading it? It is a gorgeous script. I'm so glad you think that. I couldn't agree more. I think it was sometime in 2015 that the director of this production, Annie Kaufman, sent me this play. We had worked together, you know, uh, I think at the end of 2014, early 2015, we did a play by Claire Barron called You Got Older. It was my first play back after having my first child. So it was special in a lot of ways to do that Claire Barron play. And it was really special because it was working with Annie for the first time. And I had admired her for years. She was sort of like the director I wanted to work with. Uh, We hit it off and then she sent me this play and she said, I'm doing this play in Chicago next year. She even, I remember had this caveat, like it's not the lead, but it's an amazing part, read it. And um, at that point, I was so enamored of Annie. I, you know, and to this day, I would do anything with her. 
and I read the script and I was blown away. I just, I did, I was almost mad. I was almost angry that I had somehow had a whole theatrical education that I had gone to. I went to Bronx Science here in New York. And I remember we read Raisin in the Sun. Right. And I went to Brown for college and I took theater classes and this play had never once come across right like never on your radar never and I just thought how outrageous in a way but you know I've learned over the years since doing it that first time and then again how that's actually more often the case it actually feels like special moments when I meet somebody who does know the play before coming to see this production actually at the luncheon just today Tony Kushner was giving a tribute to Susan Laurie Parks but he talked about seeing our play this weekend and he talked about having read the play years ago and not really, you know, I think he sort of said, I sort of dismissed it. And then seeing the production, it really landed, which is just another reason, a reminder that plays need to be seen and experienced and not just read. So I suspect that because this play has barely been produced since its original production in 64, and it wasn't a play that people could really understand from just reading it, that it has been dismissed. It's been ignored. Um, right. But I read it ravenously when she first sent it to me. Also, with you know, knowing that there was an opportunity to work with her again on it. I loved it from the start. Working on it back in 2016 in Chicago was marvelous. And then getting to, re- to return to it all these years later with a different cast and different input and and uh, some different cuts and reworkings. It's been really magnificent. I was so moved by for folks who don't live in New York and haven't seen this play or might not hold this playbill in their hands. Um, there is a copy of a letter that Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft wrote to the New York Times, which has only happened like a handful of times in Broadway theater history where members of the community just respond to critics, not just like word of mouth being like boiling over in anger, but going, you know what, let's spend some of our money and take out an ad to combat the voice of the press. And I thought that was, I mean, A, I literally have a letter right here from Mel Brooks on my wall. I mean, for for Miriam Silverman and Alana Levine, people like Mel Brooks are incredibly important to us for so many reasons. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and I want to talk about that because, you know, we are often sort of assumptions are made about us because of our names. Now, yep. your last name is Silverman. You may or may not be a member of the Jewish tribe. I have no idea, but there's always <laughs> an assumption. Okay. Sure. So yeah. in this play, I thought how interesting that here's a case of someone not being limited as a visionary director by someone's name and allowing your name in this program to be Silverman and choosing you to play someone who has some pretty um, sort of small-minded ideas about those who are different from her. And in this case, people of color or people of Jewish ancestry. And this comes up in the play a lot. And so I just thought, how cool that Annie didn't go, but listen, I can't I can't actually offer you this part because it doesn't quite make sense, right? She saw past that. Yeah, Alana, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because to me, this has been such a huge element of this journey with this play, um, both in in what I actually think it brings to the production and to my work as an actor, getting to sort of release into 
a character who actually would hate my people, <laughs> right? I mean, I guess, you know, my people, I, my father's side is Jewish from way back. My mother wasn't Jewish, but we grew up in New York City. We, my brother, you know, my brothers went to um, nursery school at the local synagogue. Like we, we were, we, I am Jewish. Um, and it, to be able to sort of stand on the other side and embody that it's rare. And it's rare, yeah, from a casting perspective. I, I can tell you, the list is endless, I think, of roles that I have been sort of considered for and in the end wasn't offered or wouldn't even be seen for because right. of my name. Right. And it's been a, it, and it's something I've been aware of. It's something when I was getting out of graduate school, even when I was getting out of, you know, you hear stories about back in the day, people changing their names. And even in 2005, when I was getting out of grad school, one or two different people from the industry advised me. They sort of said, you know, you're Jewish, but you could play a lot of different things and you don't want to just be limited to that. And it made me so mad, right? I just was sort of pissed off with the notion that I had to sort of change anything in my identity. And and I, I'm so glad I didn't listen to those voices and I kept my beautiful name and that I just waited for the people like Annie who actually aren't bound by some notion of of, of, you know, some wrongheaded idea about right. what casting is limited to, as you said, because I think it brings a lot to it. It's certainly, um, yeah, it's just, it's rare that I've been able to play a character who isn't, yeah, I mean, I'm often cast as Jewish characters and that's fine. And I love that, but it's been, I think it's just a fascinating dynamic to be living well, in that, that, that body and that mind doesn't work in reverse, right? Like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel co-star that you have in this play who is so identified in her home life, her domestic life, right. her family life, and her professional life as a Jewish person yeah. played by Rachel Brown, who isn't Jewish. So, right. you know, it doesn't, it works one way and not the other, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I am one of three sisters. And so anytime, I mean, I was thinking about the the three of you, Rachel Brosnahan and you and Gus Burney, who I love and is also yeah. just a dear friend. Um, yeah. You know, I kept thinking of the three sisters, the Chekhov yeah. play. I yeah. thought of like the sisters Rosenzweig, like all I kept yeah. casting you guys in all of these different <laughs> plays, um, which was, you know, there's, there's King Lear had some daughters. I mean, yes. there's just an amazing, yes. amazing abundance of sister roles. Um, I have some questions and I'm so excited to talk to you about the play itself. And then we're going to talk more about your journey just as an sure. artist in Brown and grad school and all of that. Yeah. I, I don't know, you know, how deep in the weeds we should get because everyone listening will now know who you are, but may not get to see the play. Sure. Um, sadly, uh, maybe you guys will record it either from Lincoln Center archives or or so people can see Hopefully, it you yeah. know, by, by the link and get to see it that way. Yeah. I want to know, um, there are three women in this play who are from the same parents. We hear yeah. about the father. And yet, if you met them all individually and put them in like a lineup, I'm not talking mm -hmm. about visual what you guys yeah. look like but yeah. like you seem to me like you could be it's in the 60s but like 
the Real Housewives of New York, right? Like your character, yeah. if we were to put it in modern day, yeah, yeah, um, right, is like feels very. I don't know if she lives in Connecticut, in Greenwich, or Park yeah. Avenue, but it feels very sort of moneyed and of a certain yeah. class. And then Rachel's character, who is married to Sidney Brustein in the play, um, feels like bohemian artist or wannabe artist in this case, and 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 yeah. then finally gives herself permission to be an artist, which is so hard for women still to do, right? Or people yeah. to do. And then there's a third sister um, played by Gus Burney, who um, could play a supermodel, but in this case is playing like, a, you know, an addicted prostitute, right? Yep. So they feel like each of them have either created their own identity made from whole cloth once they got out of where they were from, or Sidney Brewstein has like a really deep fantasy about who he thinks his wife is. Mm. And I wondered if you can talk to, I mean, not the three people from the same family. I mean, you know, many people who come from incredible families and then there's like a kid really struggling with addiction yeah. or gets yeah. into trouble. So I'm not even saying that, that it would be impossible that any three people from a family could go into such different world but can you tell me from the play if you use the play as source material where mm -hmm. is this family from who are these sisters and where are they from yeah this is great so they're from Trennersville, Oklahoma which is a made-up place that does not that place does not exist Hansbury made that town up and we learn from Iris pretty reliably that it's nowheresville you know, it's just a really small town. Um, Mavis, my character, never talks about where they grew up or anything. She does talk about the dad quite a lot in the right. second and act. his intellectual. And his intellectual, which is exactly the opposite of what Iris has been telling Sydney the whole time. Um, and then there's this wonderful moment where the youngest sister, Gloria, Gus's character, sort of has little nuggets that she offers about the dad that sort of support both sides. I mean, Iris even admits that she sort of fabricated a lot of the stuff to fill Sydney's fantasy about who she was. Um, but their stories still don't, even with Iris admitting that she had really exaggerated, their stories don't totally line up. And that is fascinating to me because there's both the sort of fictions that we create as grownups about what our childhood was like, as well as the way the way memory works on us so it's both what we're actively creating and what we actually remember I have I, I myself I have two younger brothers and we sometimes have very different memories of certain events in our life and it's so fascinating and I think there's something of that I do also think birth order in this particular family with these three sisters really mattered it doesn't it's sort of not a coincidence I think that the eldest sister got my character got out first married well and sort of escaped into a yes I mean whether it's Park Avenue or Connecticut into a moneyed upper class world she really climbed that ladder and Iris has sort of escaped also and is striving in her own way not for the kinds of things that Mavis wants but she made it to New York she's trying to forge her own way and that Gloria the younger sister really feels like she got you know, um, left behind and was definitely the most vulnerable to, uh, you know, pred predators, essentially. You sort of get the, she tells that story about how she got 
approached by somebody offering her work, not knowing that it was going to be sex work necessarily. And, um, and so it feels like the youngest one was left behind without guidance. You mentioned King Lear and the three sisters, just like King Lear, the mother is never mentioned in this play, just like in so many Shakespeare plays, but King Lear being one, we never mama, there's no mention of mama in the entire play, which is so interesting. Um, so it's, it's right. Uh, I mean, it makes you wonder, was he a widower and he has these three yeah. daughters or, or, I mean, right. Like me, like it feels like Sydney's fantasy of his wife. It has this kind of trailer park vibe. Right. And, totally. and, and, you know, yeah. she, she comes with one suitcase and flip-flops to you yeah. Know, yeah. Grand central and is found. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's like really, you know, I think we all come to things through our own lens. And so, yeah. like I said, as one of, I'm the youngest in my family, actually, and just sort of imagining how these three people um, navigate the world, age differences aside yeah. from the same roots, whatever that is, and this idea of reinvention yeah. and escapism, right? Like escaping from where, so also in your play is um, this incredible actor who we find out, you know, we see De Niro in the playbill and you go, is it? Could it? Maybe? <laughs> um, yes. Sure. And you're like, I yeah. heard he has seven kids. This, Why not? Why not one of them be this incredible actor? Um, I would imagine you know, you're in a play where everyone comes, like this is a famous fancy play with two very fancy people above the title and then a whole gorgeous cast and a glorious director with this amazing BAM track record. So you could probably list a lot of people you've admired who have yeah. come to see the play. Um, but can you talk a little bit about having, like, what's it like to be with De Niro's son in a play and like, is there anything about that other than the obvious, which is this kid is incredibly talented. He's amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. And I think he looks like his dad. I think you can totally see the resemblance. Yeah. And yeah. It's, um, yeah, Julian is a doll. He is just such a sweetheart and so devoted to the play and to the work and any kind of thoughts anybody might have about what a kid of somebody that famous and that revered, what they might be like, it's sort of any of those notions fly out the window, you know, he couldn't be more down to earth and just kind of available and sweet. And it is nice. I mean, sometimes between Rachel and Oscar and Julian's family friends, we don't, I never know who's, who's here for who, you know, um, you know, we all found out after the fact that Steven Spielberg came to our matinee last Wednesday. And um, I guess he knows Rachel and Oscar Little, so he wrote them a note. But it was, you know, I know uh, one of his daughters. I went to college with her and I texted me like, oh, when are you coming? Your dad just came, you know. Um, oh, no. So, so there, is, there is a lot of that. There are all these sort of people that you grow up admiring and revering and, um that have been coming. And I definitely think some, you know, sometimes Julian just casually be like, oh yeah, my friend's so-and-so. And I'm like, that's your, oh, of course that's your friend, right? right. I mean, it's also fun to have um, Gus's parents come. I did a play with Reed, that play I mentioned with Annie Kaufman, you got older, Reed was my dad in that. So I, I joked to Gus that we've kind of been sisters before because exactly. I played his father's daughter in a play yes. before. 
100%. I know yeah. Connie, her mom and I were in our first acting class in New York oh, City together. I know. And so, and also, so seeing us in this play um, and sort of seeing her take on like such a dark, complicated, yeah. devastating, devastating part. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I'm always fascinated about how a director brings a cast, especially when you're dealing with, um, really sensitive subject matter, um, ways in which people talk that is absolutely impermissible uh, in our society today. If you're a person you want to spend a second with, right, in real life. So, um, and then just using language that isn't familiar because of when the play was written. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's, there's so much language and um, racism and and politics that are just so far from what is right. I mean, it covers everything in this yeah, play. It does. So early on, I mean, you'd already had the benefit of doing a production of this play and knowing what it is for an audience to like absorb yeah. the pain and power of these words. Um, how does how does a glorious director like Annie Kaufman sort of get you all at the beginning? Like, here's how we're going to do this. How here's how we're going to make it safe in the rehearsal room, and then here's how. Here's how we, I mean, and, and, uh, Glenn, Glenn Fitzgerald, sorry, oh, I spaced yeah, on his Glenn, name, like yeah. also amazing playing, amazing. playing yes. this character who's gay also at a time where to be out in the world was so dangerous. And so yeah. his pain, everybody's got yeah. pain in this yeah. show. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how she talked to you guys as a cast and how you slowly started absolutely working and on it? Was- yeah, and it, particularly starting to play this, you know, now, because even when we did it in 2016, we handled, we, you know, I think it was handled sensitively, but we now are in a world where um, you have HR and EDI or DEI, you know, whatever order the initials happen to be in for equity, diversity, and inclusion um, coming in and working on shows. And I, this is my first play back since COVID. I, you know, I was doing a play when things shut down. I turned and did a little, I did more TV and film over the last few years. This was the playback. And I had heard from a lot of people that some theaters around the country were making a good effort to bring in EDI professionals to do workshops. But a lot of times it felt, I'd heard that people were just coming in, doing a workshop and then leaving. And it was sort of going through, you know, paint by numbers a little bit like performative rather than right like a gesture at something but I have to say that we um had the opposite experience and some of that I think was Annie's investment in really creating space and making it a real priority to not just acknowledge but to have we had a set of rehearsal agreements and a kind of system about talking about the language and the action in the play things that would be hurtful or harmful to anybody in the space. We had our assistant director sort of um, allied with that cause who would point out before we got into rehearsal, like this is a scene where this happens. Just sort of announce to the room. Because the other thing is in a big play when we were rehearsing at BAM, you never know who's walking in or out or who's walking outside and hearing things. It's just, it's like a lot, you know? So there was a, there wasn't a, you know, one and done, this stuff exists, then move on. But we were constantly re-engaging with it. We also, I mean, a big part of that was that Annie was um, 
really invested in hiring somebody to do EDI work who was really going to get into it with us. And this incredible woman named Mel Powers, she runs a company called Powerful Communications. And she came in, she's an actress also, right? She went to NYU grad acting. So she knows every, she knows both sides. And Mel worked with us at length to create rehearsal agreements, to talk about all the different, um, not just the more blatant, obvious uh, insults and offensive language moments in the play, but even tiny shades of offense, little microaggressions, things that frankly, some of which I missed when we did it in Chicago. And because I missed it in Chicago, for me, I didn't actually give it its full freight. And so there was something actually in the way we really uh, grappled with it and really acknowledged everything that was that that Hansberry wrote that I feel like is doing more of more justice and, and honoring and honoring it because as you say everybody has pain and everybody causes pain in the play everybody maybe not Max Max the painter I think he says you know but no but he, he actually does he insults um Alton for being a communist you know it's but everybody the second you think you can align with anybody they turn around and say something really awful yeah, to someone yeah yeah um, and so actually just making sure we were standing in that and that every night we we don't shy away from it because that would be doing it a disservice the language is there so we have to actually be behind it as our characters and that's yeah. tricky to do because we don't you know there was some permission and group sort of agreement that we needed to have happen in order to say some of those things yeah yeah no that makes sense um when you think about the title of the play and there is literally a sign in Sydney yeah. Brewster's I thought about bossism um mm-hmm. you know it would be a hashtag today right yeah, in terms right. of what is that what does the sign in Sydney Brewster's window mean to you literally mm-hmm. and then figuratively like what 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 does that mean um gosh it's so complicated because on a surface level it feels like I am making a proclamation of support I'm standing I am showing the world that I support this cause right but what feels one of the things particularly about that gesture is that feels so relevant to today is because that can be an empty gesture or that can be, you know, we talk about virtue signaling these days, right? You know, there's something horrible happens and people post it on Instagram for a day and then it's gone. Right. Or we put a flag outside of whatever we support and then we go and buy merchandise from a company. You know what I mean? You can put put a pride flag out. That's great. And then you go and buy willingly or unwittingly from companies that are, you know, absolutely trying to work and um, move a political machine against LGBTQ, you know, so it's, it's this thing of like, okay, this, the sign is good. I think for me, um, it's putting the sign in the window, but making sure that your actions are constantly in, in support of and going beyond that, and not just stopping at I'm putting a sign in my window. Um, and, you know, and also how easily one can, get, you know, those, the sign that Sydney pronounced publicly, we, we then see throughout the play that he's yeah. been, um, he's been kind of tricked, duped, uh, duped. duped. Yeah. which, which is 
also like a little, like, you know, there's a lot of um, specificity and unspecificity in the play. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it. I love a play that makes you want to go home and research, like yeah. what was going on politically in New yeah. York specifically in that year, you know, yeah. it, it sort of feels like, was this paper what became the village voice? Like, yes. like you sort yeah. of, you know, you yeah. think about sort of, yeah. um, which is funny because, you know, just connections, Rachel Brosnahan's dad, Tony Shalhoub works at the village voice on Mrs. Yeah. Maisel and sort of yeah. how much that time is being unearthed and, and played with artistically in all these different ways. I, I, obviously it is not yours to speak about why they wanted to do this play, but well, can you talk a little bit about the pairing of Oscar and Rachel and, and sure. the fun of that and sort of why you think they both came to this piece and, and how you and Rachel kind of formed a family and, and you and Oscar worked on the adversarial love yeah. family relationship. Yeah. Um, I, I think the first Annie had been trying to get this play done in New York since our production in 2016. And I can tell you that we did a reading in 2017 at the roundabout with Ben Stiller in the lead role. And I was brought in to do that reading as Mavis and it went really well and everybody's excited about it. And it was going to be in the season. And then if I recall correctly, something that Ben was directing shifted its dates and then the dates didn't line up with Annie's dates because she was directing something else and it was one of those just cluster moments where it's like it and then nothing could give and so it got postponed and then I think it just continued to not line up and then the pandemic happened and I think at that point uh from what I learned only recently Ben Stiller I think when BAM was then interested again, I think around 2020, 2021, maybe, no, must've must have been 2021 that BAM was sort of David Binder. They were really talking about doing it. And, and I think Annie approached Ben about it again. And, he's, and he said, I can't do it, but you should talk to Oscar Isaac. And that I only learned recently is how we got Oscar. I think they sent Oscar the play, Oscar read it. And I think he just... He talked about this the other day. He read it and just felt like, like his whole body felt like engaged with it. Um, and so he was on board. And then I, I don't know whose brilliant idea it was to approach Rachel, but someone had that genius idea. And we, I remember doing a reading, an informal reading with the two of them and some other actors in 2020. Two, early 2022 or late 2021. So a full year or something before we did the BAM production where we were, I think it was sort of for them to decide uh, whether, whether to sign on. And I think just even reading it in an office, it felt palpable how amazing the play was. And I think they both just fell in love with it and wanted to do it. And so it's been a thrill. It helps that both of them are really amazing people, not just amazing actors, but they, they actually are just good, fun, loving, supportive, open and generous people. And that's, you know, it's, that's everything that has, that set the, the tone for the whole process. It's what has made the whole company feel like a family. It's made being Rachel's older sister who loves her very fiercely easy, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and Oscar is so fun and so playful that it's sort of, 
it's like easy to connect with him uh, on stage and off and, and really um, to have fun and just to, to play and to be very alive and spontaneous. I love that second act scene that is just the two of us is so fun because I never know what's going to happen exactly, you know, and that's such a joy. Does the cast have any pre-show rituals that they do? Yeah, we all warm up together every show. On two show days, we just do it before the first show because as Kate Wilson, our amazing voice coach, always sort of reminded us, you don't need to warm up again. Like you're yeah. the matinee, you're warm. So we meet on stage an hour before curtain every night and we do a we do a warm up. Kate, we used some recordings that Kate made for us, even though she has scolded us and told us we should, we know it, we should do lead it ourselves, but we were really attached to her. So um, yeah, we all meet and, and do that. It's a physical and vocal warm up that takes about a half an hour and it's just a way to connect with each other also. And it's really wonderful. Um, so there's something you do in grad school and then in the professional world, sometimes companies do that and sometimes others. And I've missed it a handful of times just because sometimes I'm trying to spend time with the kids or, right, right. you know, family demands, but on the few occasions I've missed it, I've been really bummed and it's taken me a little while to sort of like settle in Yeah, because it's an important part of the, the evening, I think. Also, I don't think what people realize, and and it's the thing I also love is so you're you're on stage making breathing sounds and physical movements yeah. while ushers are often like unpacking playbills from cartons. Yes. And so there's the there's the creative team on stage doing yes. their thing. And then yes. there's the people who the audience interacts with before yeah. you begin, who have just watched what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, you get to know some of it, like you then have relationships with ushers in front of house and house managers, yeah. because when the house is open just to the family that is involved in the play, and then it, it gets taken back by stage management and house management for the audience. And yeah. there's that moment where it goes from our house to your house and then everyone's house. And I yeah. just feel like I'm just remembering so like like having a sense memory of also the sound of playbill boxes being opened up while you're, <laughs> you're totally. doing your breath. It's all totally. happening. I yeah. know. Um, well, then, then this really magical thing happened because it moved from BAM unexpectedly and quickly. You had that mm -hmm. thing where theater opens yeah. and you are able to grab it. Your producers are able to grab it and raise, you know, raise the revenue to do so. Yeah. Um, and right in time for these Tony nominations and you were nominated and that I can only imagine was pretty darn thrilling. So yeah. on the morning that the nominations came out, um, did you have like, did Vegas have good odds on Miriam Silverman? Like what, <laughs> was, like, you know, there are some nominations that happen before that that give people a little sense of like yeah. what the globes are to the Oscars so to speak yeah well okay so yes and no so the the drama desks came out the week before and when I was nominated for that people started thinking oh well you're obviously but honestly this was a something my friends all joked about when we were at BAM like too bad this isn't on Broadway because you'd be you'd be nominated for a Tony um but I'm just, and you're so, like, don't jinx. No, don't even well, say that I, out loud. It, it wasn't even jinxing. Cause to, to, to me, that's so, such a far-fetched idea that I, I like was like, ha ha ha, you know, 
um, the drama desk came out and people started, oh, you know, just wait next week. And I was like, okay, guys, chill out. Um, that's not happening. And then Time Out New York does their every year a little like Time Out New York Tony um, nomination list. And the way that it looks, if you just see the link online, it looks like the Tony nominations have come out and said that the Time Out New York nominations. And I was on that. And I cannot tell you the number of people that I know that saw that and thought that I'd been nominated for a real Tony. <laughs> and so all weekend, I was like, you. oh my God. As some people, I just didn't even disabuse of the notion. I just thought, okay, let, let them believe that others, sure. good friends of mine. I was like, no, no, it's just, it's really nice, but it's just time out New York. You know, right. I'll take it. It's right. nice. But right. um, that was the thing that got me even allowing myself to sort of fantasize about it I hadn't before but as people started congratulating me mistakenly I just thought my god wouldn't that be life-changing wouldn't that be earth-shattering to actually have that happen right so that sort of got you know it got me excited enough that my husband and I actually watched the nominations being announced otherwise I don't think I would have but um yeah, that we watched it that morning together and screamed and cried and yelled and fell on the floor. And it was unbelievable. It was amazing. How old are your kids? Four and nine. So um, they, the nine-year-old probably has some sense that something wonderful has oh. been happening. Oh, she does. She is over the moon. She's like more excited than I am. I mean, that's not possible, but she's as excited. It seems she's seen the show twice. She came to our opening night nice. and dressed up and came to the party. And she last weekend, not this past weekend, but the weekend before she came to the theater with me and hung out in my dressing room and backstage the whole show. Cause she's old enough to do that now. And she comes and watches warm up and she hangs out in the wig room while I get my wig on and everybody, everybody on the crew has been so nice. They're like showing her how their different jobs work. Amazing. Amazing. That's the dream. Yes. Yes. Her her favorite part though, was leaving the theater and watching me sign playbills to her. That was the best moment. Of course. Of course. So, well, Congrats. I mean, it's all so thrilling and it was really wonderful. I was one of those people who had never seen a production of this play. And now I'm one of those people who got to see a production of this play. People often feel like when these nominations forget wins, like maybe not necessarily in other, you know, in film and television, but that it often is meant to create more opportunities, at least in the theater world. Have you found that like, even just the nom is sort of bringing things to you or, or not yet, or a little bit? Um, It's really funny. Uh, I, it, it feels like, yes, I'm seeing little whiffs of it for sure. You know, I, have such an identity as like a downtown theater off Broadway. And um, yeah, there's definitely more kind of conversations and things coming my way. Uh, so we'll see. It's, cool. it, it, it's never a bad thing to have more. If it can bring a little job security, yeah. we shall take it. All yeah. right, Miriam Silverman, before I let you go, and thank you for this incredible oh, conversation. Pleasure. So much fun. Um, is there a little known fact that you can share about yourself? 
I'll share it here, although there was a little bit of a spoiler because I did a, an interview where they put it in the byline, but um, I was born on Good Morning America. My, okay. birth, my birth was filmed on Good Morning America. Wait. Was your mother a correspondent or did she work no. for the show? No, my mother was uh, one of a few women who in New York City in 1978 were considered very old at the age of 35 to be having oh their first God. child. Yeah. Oh, my God. And so old, so fascinating that they were, it was newsworthy. Yeah, that it was newsworthy that they followed a few of these women who volunteered, like they went to my mom's OBGYN and asked for him to ask some of his patients who were old geriatric. I mean, they're still geriatric, right? Like they still call, I, for my kids, I was geriatric pregnancy, but um, anything over 35 still, I think is, but it was shocking. And I think they're referring more to the eggs than the, than yes, the human of course. Right, but, carrying that. but oh anyway, we need yeah. to talk about changing terminology like we it's do. time. We yes, do. but yes. She, so yeah, it was just so uh rare and shocking that um they followed her around, and so I, I had a camera crew filming my birth, and <laughs> then I went on. Um, they brought me and my parents on to the show when I was like a week old or something like that. Yeah, wild. Is this like something that's on YouTube? They God, it's not, but um, the, the I have a VHS somewhere. Okay. We have to, we that are trying so to unlearn that crazy. weird. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I I love that you have that. And um, how strange, like so how strange. strange. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you were born and that I got to see you in this play and all the other things I've been able to see you in. And we'll get to see you in. And congrats on all of it. And thank you. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So nice chatting with you, Alana. Thank you. Of course. Until next time. Little known fact, now you can watch hours and hours of my interviews with your favorite artists as they talk about the art they love to make on YouTube. That's right. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Subscribe and enjoy. Little Known Fact, if you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.